pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Now, if you are reeling after hearing that parable, welcome to the club. Uh, it's a pretty dark parable. Uh, not pretty dark, it's a dark parable. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I, I want to sort of introduce you to this uh, sermon series called The Politics of Jesus. You know, often people say to me, keep politics out of the church. And what they mean by that is they don't want me talking about specific political parties or political candidates or telling people how to vote or that kind of thing. But we can, can't we, talk in general about politics, the political functioning of our culture and our government, because this is, the, this is what we swim in. This is our lives. This is how we live. And, and by the way, the word politic, actually the synonyms for that are pretty interesting. Astute, ingenious, wary, discreet. Those are the synonyms for the word politic. We don't ever think of it like that, do we? So I, I want to um, invite us to consider in this sermon series the general terms of politics. Because what we know about Jesus is that he lived in a very political climate. He lived in a culture that had been overrun by an oppressive foreign government. He lived in a culture in which people sided with that government in order to gain a leg up or in order to gain power and wealth. I mean, this is how Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, lived. It's how he navigated his own world. You know, in his day, there were religious authorities who had become obsessed with the laws of Moses, so much to the point that they had excluded all kinds of people for attaining entrance to the temple and the synagogue. They were bent on perfection in the worship of God, as they saw it, as they defined it. Also, their local governments had become very political. Herod Antipas, the Jewish ruler in the area of Galilee, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist simply for preaching on the banks of the Jordan River and baptizing people and calling them to repentance. And, oh, yes, challenging Herod Antipas for his behavior. This is how Jesus, this is a culture in which Jesus lived and taught and died and was resurrected in a cultural, political world. And you know, by the way, after that resurrection, that didn't go away. Those disciples who chose to follow in Jesus' way lived in that same contentious political culture. I also want to bring up the point that if we are people who believe that God is not some distant deity, but is a God deeply engaged with us personally and with the whole of creation, 
then our God is engaged in all of this. He's in the midst of it all, calling us forth to engage the world the way Jesus did. I remember hearing the great theologian, contemporary theologian, controversial contemporary theologian, Marcus Borg, talk at a conference at Bright Divinity School. And he told about growing up and that he had been a pretty um, conservative Christian, evangelical conservative Christian. And, and he then won for, for his church for a season taught from the book of Amos, the book of the prophet Amos. And that teaching so convicted him that he believed he had to make a commitment for the marginalized, the oppressed, the hungry, the poor, doing exactly the things that Jesus calls us to do. And it changed his whole life. It changed how he read the Bible. It changed everything for Marcus Borg. Well, my promise to you during this series is that I will not call names. I will not name political parties. Or will I tell you what to think or how to vote? Because that's not my business. My business is, however, to lift up who Jesus was. My understandings of how Jesus lived and moved and had his being in the world. And how he called us forth. And how, through him, we get to see in human form exactly what God looks like. And, and just, I, I, I had an epiphany last week when somebody forwarded to me a video by Brian McLaren, one of our contemporary theologians. Uh, the the video is called The Five Electric Electorates of 2020. And before you go getting worried that I'm going to get political here, I just want to say that Brian McLaren lines out four electorates and tells us what each of those electorate, what each of those groups of people value. And what you learn from that is that each of those groups have values that we could all probably agree with. It's an amazing video, and I lift it up to you, and I hope you'll go to Google and Google Brian McLaren dash the five electorates. So that's kind of how we're going to the gospel. So let me remind you that this, what we heard today, is a parable. And it's a parable that Jesus is teaching in the midst of a very contentious situation. And it's a parable that shows us what human sin is looks like. It also has to make us wonder if this isn't also a parable about cosmic evil. Because this is a violent parable. I mean, lots of people get beaten up and run off and killed. It's a violent parable. and Let's name it and claim it for what it is. As told through the lens of the writer of Matthew, writing some 50 years after the event of the resurrection, 
we need to remember that Matthew is writing during a time in which there was a growing rift between um, Jewish followers and Jesus followers. And those Jesus followers were challenging Jewish leadership. We need to remember that Matthew is intent on convincing his listeners that Jesus is, in fact, the prayed-for Messiah. So in this, in this parable and the one preceding it that we heard last week and the one coming after it that we'll hear next week, Jesus is in um, a contentious debate, argument, with the religious authorities, including the highest order of the religious authorities, the Pharisees. This is the second of the three parables. And Jesus spars well with the religious authorities. After all, he is a trained rabbi. Now, remember, Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem with his followers praising and singing hosannas. He has gone into the temple and turned over the tables and disrupted everything. And now the authorities are wanting to know, who are you? And what are you doing? Now, you can't really blame them, can you? The religious authorities are not necessarily bad people. They go to temple, they go to synagogue, they practice their faith. The violence of this parable is difficult, but it is important to remember that parables by their nature are have exaggerations. They're bigger than life. Equally important to remember is that Jesus is drawing on his knowledge of the scriptures. He draws the language of this parable directly from the book of the prophet Isaiah that uses this exact language. In this way, Matthew's Jesus places Jesus in the lineage of the prophets. And you know the prophets were people who spoke to God on behalf of the people and spoke to the people on behalf of God. And because of that, speaking to the people on behalf of God actually called the people out a lot, often saying things that people didn't want to hear. In addition, Matthew's Jesus uses a common turn of words, a common turn of the story to trap the listeners. So let me show you how this works. At the end of telling the parable, Jesus turns to the religious authorities and says, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is unique to the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. This, This parable is told in Luke and in Mark, but... It's in Matthew where Jesus turns to the the religious authorities and says, well, now, what is the owner going to do? Now, the same thing happened in the Hebrew Scriptures. You remember King David. You remember how he saw Bathsheba and was overcome by passion, and he took her as his own, even though she was married to Uriah. And then, in order to cover up his error of his ways, his sin, he calls Uriah back when he finds out Bathsheba is pregnant. And then, because Uriah is such a noble gentleman and bent on going back into battle, he doesn't sleep with his own wife. Instead, David sends him to the front lines where he is killed. In comes the prophet Nathan. Nathan goes to David and tells the story of a shepherd who had a little lamb, and he had cared for that lamb like a baby. And that lamb followed him, and 
he took care of that lamb and he loved that lamb. And then a person comes in and takes and kills that lamb. And David is so infuriated. He says, well, then that person, should we should find them and put them to death. Who would do such a thing? And Nathan says, you are that man. It's a pretty interesting term, and it's one Jesus employs. Jesus uses this technique to get the religious leaders to, to realize their own complicit behavior as they condemn themselves by saying that the owner of the vineyard sh should destroy those wicked tenants. Matthew is getting ready to enter into the whole discussion of the passion and crucifixion of Jesus, and that's when the cornerstone conversation comes but not before the religious authorities have realized that they are the ones Jesus is speaking of. So let me ask you, have you ever had the mirror held up to you? I mean, you know, in some way that you failed, or you've hurt someone else, or done something completely out of character, done damage. Have you ever had someone ask you, well, what would you do if it were so-and-so? And, and don't we do what Nathan did and what David did and what, what the religious authorities do? Don't we say, well, then they need to be called on the carpet. They need to be gotten out of here. They don't belong. Whatever condemnation we have, only to have that person hold the mirror up for us and say, it is you. Have you ever had that experience? Moreover, I'll wager this is exactly what is happening in our political world today. We draw lines in the sand. We've lined up against each other. We have condemned those who do not share our beliefs, only to realize that we are becoming the very thing we are condemning. So even as we shrink from this very violent parable, there's an important lesson here, I think. Remember, Jesus asks, now when the owner of the tent vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And who do you suppose the owner of the vineyard actually is in this story? Who is it also who has been unfaithful in Matthew's Jesus' eyes to the caring of God's realm? Who is Jesus holding the mirror up for? And who do you suppose the owner of the vineyard is? And Jesus counters the response of the religious authorities who say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. But Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. In other words, even though we fail, and it would seem that evil wins the day, that's not the end of the story. That which we have rejected becomes the cornerstone from which God will establish God's realm on earth. Even in the coming death of Jesus, God will not be thwarted, and that is good news. 
That is good news then, and it is good news today. And in the end, you see, as with all parables, this parable really isn't about the wicked tenants. It's really not about the Pharisees or about Matthew's community or even about us. This parable is about God who comes to us. This God who has entrusted us with amazing gifts, blessing us beyond the dreams of our grandparents. This God, the one, even when disappointed with us and by what we do, with those blessings we've been given, comes to us in love. This God who weeps over the injustices of our world embraces all of us who fall short and promises to never, ever, 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 ever give up on us. Which leaves us with the questions that we need to ask ourselves. I love these questions. I read an essay by David Lose, who's a theologian and professor, and he asks these questions. He says, well, what will we do? Will we hoard the blessing? Will we embrace those in need? Will we use our privilege for the greater work of God in the world, for justice and equity? Will we finally reach out to the Christ in those who we see as different than ourselves? Or will we be just comfortable Christians in our stained glass churches? This really isn't a story about staying out of hell or getting into heaven, is it? Because that work has already been done for us, shown to us in Jesus Christ. But this is about who we will be here how we will reflect God's realm, God's politics, Jesus' politics. Today, as I said, is the Feast of St. Francis. Although many people are familiar with Francis' story, many people may not realize what a well-grounded revolutionary he was with values of nonviolence, simplicity, and the care of creation. His values seem to become more and more important every year. Nearly 800 years ago, it was that St. Francis walked the face of the earth. And now he remains one of the world's most popular saints, perhaps because he made faith and life concrete for us, the faith and life of Christianity concrete for us. Listen to what Pope Francis said about how he took the name of Francis. He says that during the election, I was seated next to Brazilian Cardinal Claudio Umes, a good friend. When the votes reached two-thirds, Cardinal Umes leaned over and said to me, don't forget about the poor. Right away, thinking of the poor, I thought of Francis of Assisi. For me, he is the man of poverty, the man of peace, the man who loves and protects creation. He is the man who gives us the spirit of peace, the poor man. Oh, how I would like a church which is poor and for the poor. Saint uh, Pope Francis is the first Jesuit priest elected pope. Hispanic Argentinian Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio became the first to assume this name of Francis. And he showed that 
immediately by rejecting the fancy red slippers and the fancy robes and taking an apartment in not the papal apartments, but in the guest house. You know, he has shown us what Francis actually looked like by spurning violence and power, reaching out to members of other religions, treating women with dignity and respect, cherishing the earth and all its creatures. And this pope, as the Francis before him, is pointing to a form of human and cosmic community marked by love. And does it, interestingly, with a spirit of joy, with a spirit of wonder, with a spirit of attraction to many people. As Howard Strauss said in our first lesson, we are in a fourth turning. And like Francis and Pope Francis, we have a chance to usher in a renewal of a new world and a new time. So let's take this politic. Let's take this God politic. Let's take this Jesus politic. Let's take this Francis politic and let the Holy Spirit guide us in ways that we who take the name Christian and seek to follow in the way of Jesus, as did Francis of Assisi, that it may be so for us and for all.